You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. Today I spoke to Emma Hughes. Emma is a London-based freelance writer and editor who covers everything from food to travel, relationship advice to rom-coms, for everyone from Time Out to Wired and The Guardian and many more. Emma's first novel, No Such Thing as Perfect, was published in 2021 and is available in all good bookshops. Her second novel, It's Complicated, is out in July 2023. When we spoke, Emma and I discussed what might have happened if, after going through a rigorous application process, she'd received and taken an offer to work at MI5. Along the way, we discussed the things we learn as we get older, the way society privileges certain types of intelligence, and whether or not we should all be a bit more serious. Hi, Emma. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm very happy to be here. Oh, I'm really, really glad. And I'm um, particularly glad that you are joining me on My Unlived Life because I feel like your path is definitely a first. Like this is this is one we have not heard before. We haven't done this yet. It's totally unique. And it was of so much interest that you've already written about it for The Guardian. You haven't explored the path, but we've we've heard about the junction before. So I'm excited for you to talk a little bit more about that. Um, and I'm also wondering if when we go down your path, because it is so different, if it's going to take you away from your current life as a journalist and a writer, or if it's going to perhaps change the nature of what you write about would be the other thing. Um, so, so that we have a little sense of that, can you just say first and foremost, something about your debut novel, No Such Thing as Perfect, please? Absolutely. So No Such Thing as Perfect came out in uh, 2021 and it is uh, out in paperback now. Um, it is about a, uh, a journalist called Laura who is coming up for 30 and um, nothing in her life is, is going especially well. She works at a newspaper and um, she's at risk of losing her job. Um, her two flatmates have got together and moved out. And so she has had to uh, move in with her older sister. She's sleeping on an airbed there. She doesn't have a very good relationship with anyone in her family. Um, and her love life is not very successful. Um, and into all of this, she gets a press release um, one morning in her work inbox from uh, a new startup called Cupid, um, which uh, says that its um, its USP is that it uses your um, your kind of online search history and that that sort of information, which is sort of available, um, you know, to advertisers fairly freely. Um, they use that as the most kind of supposedly reliable guide to who you really are and what kind of person will make you happy and um, they want her to uh, kind of be the first person to uh, trial it and write about it and Laura thinks well you know this could kill a couple of birds with one stone I might keep my job and you know maybe um, I'll, I'll figure out why I'm perennially single um, so she says yes and Cupid matches her with someone who's supposedly her perfect match and um, things don't really go to plan from there. So that's it. <laughs> Perfect. And you can tell from the moment she gets that email that things aren't really going to go to 
plan from there, um, which yes. is just so it's so satisfying just to watch that sort of trajectory take off. Um, OK, well, we are going to just keep that in the back of our minds as we think about you and your unlived life, um, which I think we should just kick right off. Let's just get right into it, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. So the year was 2010 and I was 23 years old and I had recently moved to London from Manchester where I'd been living for um, a couple of years uh, training as a as a journalist. Um, and as, as you can probably hear from my voice, I'm not I'm not from Manchester, but um, I had spent a few years there and I um, I, I had got very kind of used to the feeling of the city and the kind of um, the comparative sort of um, the sort of bit of it I lived in was quite small and cosy. Um, I really knew my way around and um, but I couldn't find a permanent job up there. So I, I got one in London working as a junior sub-editor on a women's weekly magazine and what that basically meant was I was checking um I was checking prices um and kind of fact checking things and um I don't know if anyone listening has ever worked at a at a women's magazine uh, but they're not um not always the the happiest and friendliest of environments <laughs> and uh, this one was um it, it wasn't the happiest office um although I, I did have some really nice colleagues um what was but it was unhappy in terms of <laughs> in terms of in a sort of devil wears product kind of way or a bit, yeah a, a little bit you know people did used to have kind of arguments in the office um there were some um you know some really quite um quite challenging characters um and I was also I was really really bad at the job um, and I did, <laughs> I did, I did go on uh, to actually work as a sub editor, kind of on and off for for many years, and and really enjoyed it. But I just, I just wasn't wasn't good at it. And I was living in a in a room in a flat um, that cost um, it was kind of exactly half of my monthly salary, um, and the flat didn't have any windows. <laughs> And my room didn't have any windows either, but it was costing me a fortune is a very familiar story. Um, and I just, uh, I just sort of woke up every morning and thought, oh, like, you know, this is, um, you know, kind of, is, is this it? Um, and sort of every lunchtime I would take my, um, take my sandwich out to the, um, the canal in Camden which is where the the office was and I just used to kind of sit there with my sandwich and yeah just I just used to think you know there's got to be some way of um finding a more um more meaningful um way of um, of making my my living and you know now listening to myself saying that I think oh my goodness like you slightly had ideas above your station at 23 like but yeah I certainly um I kind of wanted to be a, a a journalist uh with kind of quite a sort of um uh sort of um civic purpose I guess you could say you know I did think it would be a kind of line of work where I could um you know make a difference kind of give something back um and I, I had kind of come from training on a, um, a a regional newspaper where that was kind of very much the feeling that you, you know, you were you were kind of performing a a civic duty, um, and I felt I'd really drifted from that. Fair. It's such a tricky thing, isn't it? Those early career um, jobs because it's like you have you're like the height of your sort of ambition and idealism, and also that just juts right up against like the reality, which is that everybody's first job is shit. And like, you have to do some <laughs> level of slog. Exactly. I worked in events for my, you know, so my first job. So there's, you know, endless putting out chairs and pouring coffees and pouring glasses of wine and, you know, cleaning up and all of that stuff. And it's like, everyone has to does it. And, and at the same time you're like, but I'm supposed to be changing the world. <laughs> exactly. Why am I not changing the world? 
you know, it's really good training. And in fact, the only form of training to kind of learn how an industry works from the kind of bottom up. But, uh, you know, as you say, young, young people in their kind of early 20s, certainly sounds like we both have this, you know, that you you do have this kind of um, uh, idealism and, um, you know, this, this, this sort of belief that you, you know, you can, you know, you, you can make an impact if people only give you a chance. Exactly. We won't talk about what happens when you get older and more jaded and yeah. <laughs> young people, young people listening, you can make a difference. So this is your backdrop. So you're, you're basically sitting on the canal in Camden with your sandwich, feeling slightly underwhelmed at the state of your, of your existence. And, um, okay. And then something happens. What happens? I think uh, one of the other things that prompted this was actually seeing the uh, the magazine that I'd been working on, um, you know, and really kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, being so industrious, kind of checking all these 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 tiny things. I and I remember getting the tube home one night and seeing a copy of it just kind of on the floor of the tube, and like people had stepped on it and there were footprints, and it was a bit soggy. And I thought, oh, oh, I worked so <laughs> I worked so hard on that. <laughs> And I thought, oh, you know, something, something needs to needs to change. I did feel like it needed to be something quite dramatic. Like I just needed to do something that would just almost pick me up and put me in like a different person's life. And um, I can't remember if it was the following day or later that week, but it was pretty soon afterwards uh, that I saw um, there was an online advert uh for and it was quite opaque it was a sort of um it was an invitation to take uh, a sort of online psychometric test and um reading between the lines i i could sort of tell that it was for mi5 <gasps> and i was i was just at my desk kind of on my lunch break I hadn't hadn't yet taken my my sandwich out of the canal and I just thought well you know like it was a I think it was a kind of half hour timed test and I thought oh you know I'd never taken one before and I was just quite interested to see how I did and um it was some so you sort of you clicked on it and it kind of um you know took you through to this online test there was a clock running and um it was it was sort of verbal verbal reasoning type questions which i had uh, sort of encountered before in a very limited way and i mean i i am someone who literally has to go like has to hold their hands up in order to tell their left from their right i have to count on my fingers like my numerical reasoning my spatial awareness are really really bad but verbal <laughs> reasoning um th- that is a sort of pocket of of skill um, and um a big so pocket I, I, that's a big pocket of skill verbal reasoning is like a significant skill pocket a big pocket of skill <laughs> so um i was actually really enjoying this test and um i, I sort of lost track of time and then i realized oh i've got to the end and oh i've finished it you know, in, in the allotted time. And then the window sort of closed itself. And I thought, oh, right. Okay, well, um, that's that then. And um, I think then I did go out for my lunch. <laughs> and then when I came back, there was this, I had this email basically saying, you, you've successfully completed this test. And um, we'd like you to, um, uh, you know, to um, sort of proceed to the next stage of the recruitment process I just sort of thought here it is you know <laughs> here's my thunderbolt so then what happens so um and I I I was kind of immediately um and I, I'm really <laughs> really conscious of how kind of you know egocentric I'm sounding when I'm saying this um but you know I was young <laughs> I was just kind of um, filled with this sense of um, specialness and purpose. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, um, most people don't pass this test. And I did, you know, maybe 
you know, I might spend my days here kind of being shouted at and told off for being not very good at my job. But actually, you know, maybe maybe there are kind of untapped bits of me which, you know, could be put to this kind of big purpose. Um, so I, I I think I I kind of replied to the email in the affirmative and then um I um I got a um I got an invitation to a, a sort of uh, an, an assessment center which is just kind of you know more more tests and you can't yeah. you're not allowed to say what the tests are right that's I'm yeah. not no <laughs> I do have to be a bit um a bit cagey about the the details I had a series of of interviews um some in person uh some over the phone um my phone one I remember I I couldn't I couldn't speak in the flat um because it it was underground and had no windows and also my my flatmates were there I couldn't speak at work um couldn't speak on a bench so I actually kind of booked one of those like you know office meeting rooms um and literally within kind of a minute of um you know, uh, starting this call, the fire alarm in this building went off. (laughs) And so I ended up doing it sitting on the floor of a pub toilet. Stop. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I I did say to them, you know, I'm sitting in a pub toilet, but like it's 11 o'clock in the morning. So there's no one else in here. Um, Is that all right? And they were like, "Um, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As long as no one can overhear (laughs) you. There were quite a lot of of stages, and in between each, there would be a sort of bit of a wait. And because this was two thousand and ten, um, actually, most of the correspondence was done um, by by post rather than by email. So I would just kind of like come home every day and you know check my little cubby hole in the the entrance hall of this building. I was I had the, this flat in to see if there was a sort of um they were the plainest envelopes you can imagine see if there was one of those kind of sticking out and you know it was some it, it was exciting it sounds kind of like what you were craving a little bit um and then you had this um you had this moment that you talked about in the guardian article <laughs> when you're on the <laughs> the train so i was just uh i was just kind of on the on the tube it was a busy tube and um i think i was standing up um and um this man uh, kind of uh, struck up a, a conversation with me and um in the sort of way that people who don't live in london and don't really understand that like you don't speak to people on the tube and especially not before nine o'clock in the morning and he was very, very friendly and kind of asked me all this stuff about, um, you know, myself and where I worked. And, you know, he didn't seem uh, kind of creepy. He was just very friendly. Um, and, you know, he, he but but quite persistent. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not very friendly on the tube at the best of times, especially not in the morning. So I just sort of, um, you know, kind of fobbed him off a bit um but I did tell him you know my first name was was Emma um anyway we we got to a certain point and he said he said well um this is my stop um and then just before he got off he said it was nice to meet you Emma Hughes (gasps) and there was a sort of my there was a bit of a delay in my brain and I suddenly realized uh, I hadn't told him my surname. Oh, that's so intense. It's amazing how sort of endlessly intriguing it is, right? <laughs> so ultimately, you went through all of this. You had weird guy on the train. You had the, you know, your brown pa- plain envelopes in the in the post, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, ultimately, did you get the job? So, spoiler alert, I did not. Um, <laughs> I, Listeners, um, I did got- not get the job. I did not get the job. I got all the way through the um the formal recruitment process, kind of to my astonishment. And um then um you have a face to face interview and mine was oh god, it was it was about half a day. Um and uh somebody kind of goes through everything with you and um I remember um 
you know, things, you know, to do with your kind of, um, you know, if you've ever slept with anyone who's a kind of, um, you know, who might be considered a security risk, um, you know, your, um, your, your had you, had you slept with anyone who was a security risk? Uh, I, not to the best of my knowledge. Um, I think, um, and looking back on it, I can see, you know, just what a kind of, you know, what a terrible fit this would have been in so many ways. But I was very, at that point in my life, I was, I was very, very directionless. And um, the sort of the distance between where I was in every area of my life and where I wanted to be felt so huge. It was such a comforting idea that someone might almost just kind of scoop me up and say, it's all right, like, we've decided what your life is going to look like you actually don't, you don't have to decide anything anymore because you don't get to, (laughs) it's done. And that was very, um, that was really appealing. That's such an interesting impulse, isn't it? That, That sense of, especially when you're young, so much choice, so many options. And I think we talk about sort of the opportunity of, of youth, but I think that some of it is paralyzing. And I think there's a very strong desire to just have somebody take it away. Completely. And and what, what I find interesting is that I, I was kind of one of the very, the, the very few of my friends who kind of that sort of, you know, early twenties period didn't end up in um, a, a kind of very serious cohabiting relationship a lot of my friends had you know got together with people around that kind of age in a very very serious way and kind of moved in with them you know um at 23 at sort of you know early 20s yeah um and I I do feel it's kind of the same impulse to sort of um to sort of attach yourself to somebody who you know, there's a kind of ready-made life for you to sort of fall into. Um, And, you know, at the time that kind of feels, you know, it it gives you a sense of a kind of of home um, and kind of adulthood and having kind of attained the markers of adulthood. But then, you know, I think the older you get, quite often you sort of, you start to chafe against and outgrow those kind of um you know those structures that felt so comforting uh, when you were um, a bit younger and just kind of didn't really have much else i think you've just literally perfectly described my first marriage <laughs> <laughs> i think i would have had one of those marriages if i hadn't done this i guess is what i'm saying which isn't to negate people who find true love in their early 20s but i think you're absolutely right exactly and i i i did Oddly, kind of at the time that I was doing all of this, I did <laughs> such a pretentious English literature student. I did have that line from John Donne kind of in my head quite a lot about to enter in these bonds is to be free because I felt free. I was, you know, I'd had all these kind of conditions of who I could tell about this and not placed on my existence, you know, um, I really had to kind of hand over a lot of myself. But it was some, it it had kind of removed all of the worry of thinking, well, you know, how am I going to get a better job? How am I going to find a better place to live? Um, How am I going to find a relationship? How, you know, all of this is on me, and how am I going to do it? And suddenly, none of it was my problem anymore. And um, it was it was a really calm time, strangely. <laughs> and now, you know, that I am, um, you know, uh, sort of over a decade on and I find myself with two, uh, two, two jobs, you know, I'm a freelance journalist and I write books and both of those are the momentum is entirely, uh, entirely dependent on, on me. And I think kind of for perhaps for novelists in particular, you know, the pressure to be your own marketing person, you know, to, um, you know, to be continually 
um, generating uh, sort of visibility for yourself and your work in order to sort of stay relevant, stay saleable, um, is is huge and um, and crushing. And um, you know, even now, sometimes I, you know, I wouldn't trade the life I have have now for, for anything. But I do, you know, sometimes I do kind of think wistfully of just um uh uh you know just sort of a, 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 <laughs> maybe just a day of a of a life with no kind of autonomy okay so i want to get you on your path because it's going to be really interesting to see what it feels like to have a life with no autonomy so in real life we don't you know we don't quite think that this is your cup of- actually they didn't even say that did they they gave you no feedback it really did feel like kind of being dumped mm-hmm. um, because this had been quite a long process, I think maybe like six months. Um, and I did call them and said, you know, like, <laughs> I know you can't give me feedback, but, you know, is this a forever no or just a for now no? And then they did get back to me and say, well, you know, you'd be welcome to reapply in a few years. And I don't know what that implied but then you know I never I never actually did because I I got another job at a different magazine and I stayed there for quite a long time and you know my life just kind of happened and you moved Um, out of the basement flat yes I moved in I moved in with uh, my best friend um into a flat with windows and um yeah, my, my life just got, I became happier, you know, I kind of found my feet. And the desire to um, hand myself over to an organisation in that way became less. Just before we go in the other direction, what, um, <laughs> all of this conversation about, about partners, what was your romantic situation? No, there wasn't. Okay. Um, and you hadn't uh, but, slept with anybody who was a security risk, so that's another thing that's important <laughs> no, to note. No, um, no, I was I was single at that time, and uh, I kind of was for a really, a really long time afterwards. But again, now kind of looking back on it um, from the perspective of someone who is currently single but has had kind of you know longer relationships in that that period. I mean, it it meant that I was able to kind of um, say yes to so many things and, um, you know, I was able to kind of embark on a lot of things and try things completely on my terms, which is such a privilege. And I think you only realise as you get older, like just how amazing a thing it is to have, you know, an entire weekend with no commitments that you can just fill how you like. But, you Mm. know, at the time when all of your other friends are in couples and they're, you know, going away for the weekend or, you know, going for couples brunches, it's, it's miserable. Of course. Okay. Well, let's, um, we need to get you on your path. Okay. So in this unlived life, you go through the whole process, you walk away, maybe you feel a little bit queasy, but regardless They come back, you get the letter in the unmarked envelope and it says, welcome to MI5. I'm just going to assume it says, welcome to MI5. And there's sort of confetti on the inside and stuff. Okay. What, what happens next? Well, um, I, uh, I, I would have immediately, um, uh, handed in my, my notice at, uh, at the job I was so bad at. And I think everyone would have been very relieved about that. And certainly my kind of assumption was that um, this would be a job that would be pretty well paid because what it's kind of asking of you in return, it's quite, um, quite a lot. But actually, that's not the case at all. Um, Certainly kind of entry level roles um, in the security services are paid. It's like any other civil service job. Um, So, you know, the pay is not not terrible but it's certainly not kind of you know like winning the euro millions um so in that respect i think kind of um 
you know, I wouldn't have been living anywhere drastically different. Would you have moved out of the basement regardless, though, as in yeah. would you have had to as in like it would one of the rules have been that you have to live alone or can you just not tell your friends and flatmates what you do for a living? I think you can just not tell your friends and and flatmates what you do for a living. Um, but I think it probably would have um, would have made me more reluctant to move in with my best friend. And kind of this is where I think I immediately run into, in my imagination, just the absolute um, wrongness of this. Um, because um, there would have been so few people in my life that I could really um, be honest with, mm. you know, that I could really um, properly talk to about my work you know, how my day at work was. Um, I mean, it's, it's basically nobody. Um, you know, if you have a, if you have a, you know, a, a, a partner, like if you're in a, a serious relationship, you are, you know, you can tell them, but you obviously can't tell them the details of what you're doing. Um, you know, you really are only able to confide in, um, your colleagues. Um, and you can only really talk within, work I guess when I compare that to kind of how things actually went which was you know it was me and and Ed uh, my best friend sitting in the kitchen of his flat um with a bottle of cooking sherry um you know talking about our respective work days um and sort of forgetting to eat dinner and you know that was um that was really foundational to the friendship that we have now um and I would I just, I would have had to keep everybody at arm's length outside of work. And I, now I can't imagine how I thought for a second that that would be okay. It's such a sort of fundamental bit of life, isn't it? That that ability to, to debrief, like that ability just to share... Just the basic bits, you know, the embarrassing things and the funny things. Um, let's think about how you might have navigated it. So let's think first, what is the job? Is it sort of a like an entry level intelligence officer? Is that what it is? I think so, yeah. And my I imagine that I probably would have been working more on the kind of people the people facing side of it rather than anything kind of analytical or data. So what is that? What's the people focus bit? I imagine that a lot of it is kind of um, sort of, yeah, I guess almost like what you would call a kind of like a sort of HR role, you know, kind of um, uh sort of checking in on on colleagues kind of debriefing people or briefing people um sort of uh having kind of discussions about third parties and you know what they what they might be like as as people and it all sounds very opaque when i'm saying this because i yeah i truthfully don't know but um but yeah that's where i picture myself kind of somewhere more um in these sort of the kind of HR side of things, because I, I like talking to people. I like kind of people talking to me. I like um, figuring out what makes them tick, um, what drives them. That's really interesting to me. So I, I think that is, that kind of feels like that would have been the best fit for me. You do have to You've quit your job. You do have to tell people something. So let's start with that. What do you think you tell people? Difficult as it may be. I imagine I probably would have said I'm, you know, going to work for the civil service, um, going to work for the MOD, um, joining the civil service graduate scheme. That seems to be what people kind of say. Um, and I think, it, you know, as a kind of a cover story, it works really well because people are like, oh, that sounds boring. I won't ask <laughs> any more questions um yeah so so probably probably that 
Um, and I think that probably would have raised quite a lot of eyebrows because, um, you know, I'm just, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, was the, the, the least likely person to do something um, as kind of serious sounding as that um, at that point in my life. Um, and I, mm. I still don't think I'm a very serious person. <laughs> Do you, do you feel like you need to be a serious person? <laughs> I think I did feel a lot of um a lot of pressure then to yeah to be uh to be a kind of serious person and I don't know how much of that was the fact that I um went to Cambridge and felt very um very kind of um intellectually lightweight for the entire time I was there I, I think lots of people when they're in an environment like that they just you do feel this kind of like the people who are teaching you are a bit disappointed in you that you're you know <laughs> like, um that is kind of something that has sort of um you know I I find it now kind of writing romantic comedies as I do people um you know more often than you think people kind of read my book and say to me it's actually good <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and I'm like well thank, yes, thank you it's, it's not it's not bad thank <laughs> you um you know and they seem surprised that there's kind of um an attempt at sort of intellectual engagement with the world in it you know in in a book about a love triangle but anyway <laughs> I mean there's I so many you know, I'm sure we could both rant for hours about the misconceptions and assumptions around romantic fiction and the ludicrous sort of snobbery around it, especially when it makes up such a ridiculous percentage of the book market. And yes, God forbid something be about love and be serious at the same time. Like, <laughs> shock. Did it feel like actual reality that the, your colleagues at, at Cambridge were outstripping you? Or was it just that thing of that was just sort of a different kind of upbringing, a different kind of person. I mean, there's it's such a rarefied environment, as far as I can tell. It it, it really, really is, and it kind of um, yeah. The the this is <laughs> the theme of our conversation today is the older I get, the more I realize. <laughs> um, but um, I think there is a particular kind of intelligence and a way of demonstrating that intelligence that is really really valued in those kinds of environments and it is um certainly it was when I was there and I think it probably still is it's it's very much it was very much kind of set up for very um confident um contrarian young men who had probably been to um you know one of the big kind of um all boys private schools and were used to that kind of really quite aggressive debating and sort of taking up a position and just defending it um as a sort of intellectual exercise um and i i've that's not something i've ever been able to do or ever enjoyed doing i find it really stressful that kind of conflict and um I always thought that my any intelligence I did have was more on the kind of emotional intelligence end, and um, that is, you know, it's uh, certainly yeah that that just kind of it wasn't it didn't it didn't really figure, and I think actually that was something that um, uh, that really it was another thing that really attracted me to the idea of becoming an intelligence officer, the idea that kind of emotional intelligence was not something um, soft and fluffy. You know, it could actually have a practical, quite high level um, application. Interesting. So you're going to tell your friends that you work at the MOD. Um, they're going to be like, but Emma, you're not you're not a serious person or in your head, at least that's what you're thinking. Maybe they, what do they think? <laughs> they think it's a bit strange because it doesn't seem very much like you. You also said that you think you wouldn't be able to live with your best friend, Ed, because it mm. would be like, it would be too close. So what do you do on the living front? 
I think uh, probably the temptation would have been to live with people I just didn't know and kind of didn't really get to know, which um, is not something that I have ever, I, I sort of have ever done subsequently. Um, uh, but I do, you know, I do have friends who've kind of moved into, you know, houses, flat shares with people. They've just kind of, who've never become friends, who they've never really got to know. And it's, um, you know, it's it's lonely. It is lonely. Um, and I think especially somewhere like London, where you just don't have that much space to yourself. And this kind of brings me on to what I think would have been the big thing. Um, I mean, kind of famously, people who work in the security services quite often have relationships with each other and marry each other because Ooh. it's just easy. <laughs> like It is the easiest thing. Um, you, you know, because you you can be totally open from the start um and actually if you are if you take this kind of job and you're single and then you meet someone and it becomes quite serious you do have to kind of flag it up to your employer and say look like and basically they that person kind of needs to be checked out to make sure that they're not just kind of you know getting into a relationship with you um you know to kind of compromise you professionally so it's it's just it's just easier to kind of date a colleague um and that's kind of what I if I'd really jumped into it with both feet that is I think I was very much the kind of person who if you know I had met a colleague who had just sort of said you know okay let's move in together you know, all right, let's get married in a couple of years. I just thought, great, I've sorted my whole life out. And all these kind of worries that I had about myself, that I couldn't do any of these things. Look, I've done them. <laughs> I've completed the game. Um, and this is that- giving me heart palpitations <laughs> for you. I feel so, I feel so claustrophobic. <laughs> kind of not that long after they said kind of, no to me I did um I did get into a actually fairly short-lived relationship with with someone who was about 10 years older and you know had a whole kind of life set up and he had his own place and I kind of immediately fell into this world of like dinner parties and weekends away and um you know it was this sort of ready-made life and I was so ready to just chuck away everything that I had and just get on that train and you know just to sort of have it all sorted for me so that the impulse was was absolutely there and if I had been working in that kind of environment and met someone who was offering me that I would certainly have gone for it well let's see let's figure it out maybe 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 this person will surprise you first off who is he (sighs) who is he I think let's find him in your office (laughs) I think he is probably someone a, a bit older um, because at that point in my life I was I was very drawn to kind of older people who had everything sorted out. So let's say kind of eight years older than me. Um, okay. I think it's he- compelling, isn't it? That that person who looks like they've got everything together. Yeah. Com- they really they really are appealing because they look like they'll solve all your problems. Yeah, completely. And they've just got an answer for everything. And, um, you know, it's just so nice, like waking up in someone's flat when they don't have flatmates, you know, and they've got wine in the fridge and they've got money for taxis. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have to get the night bus because the night bus was still a thing in 2010. Uh, let's let's not forget. <laughs> Uh, what what does he do in the bureau? <laughs> I, do you call it the bureau? Is that American to call it the bureau? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the FBI. I that's the FBI. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a different different bit of the organization, and you know maybe we um, met in if there's a canteen, maybe we met in the canteen, possibly, or on a sort of um, on a night out, because I guess I guess such things must you know people must go to the pub okay so you meet guys should we give him a name what's his name <sighs> uh what should, oh what should we call him 
I should. This is a real weakness of mine as a writer, thinking up names for characters. I honestly just have a kind of almost like a random name generator. I'm like, yeah, sure, that will. Yeah, <laughs> um, let's uh, let's call him Frank. <laughs> Love that. Frank is such a solid Frank. MI5 guy name. Yes, Frank. he totally feels like a Frank. That's perfect. Okay. okay, so you and Frank, you meet in the canteen slash in the pub somewhere social. He does something else. He's obviously more senior than you are. Um, which maybe isn't a problem because he's in a, well, it's not a problem because they encourage this kind of thing. Um, and you date for a little while. Does it, it sounds like it moves pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, in my, my wildest kind of 25 year old dreams, um, Frank asked me to, um, marry him, uh, which I think would have been really important to me at that age. Well, I, I know it was mm. important to me at that age, and it, it 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 really is far less so now. But I think at that age, it would have felt like all of this kind of would have felt like a validation of me as a you know a a proper functioning adult. And now I can see that that's you know that's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. Mm. But you know, I um, yeah, I think I'd have just. Um, I'd have just thought that was that was great, um, but it's such a um, it's such a <laughs> sort of toxic message that we all have that these things are the markers of adulthood. I remember saying something similar to my therapist, you know, saying like I just don't feel like a grown up because there's these things that aren't in place, and she always says that a grown up is somebody who's in touch with their emotional reality and can handle it while dealing with the rest of their lives. And I'm like, oh. I love Still it. not a grown up, <laughs> but it's better. It's better than the other thing. That's great. Okay. So it's important to you that he proposes. He does relatively swiftly. Um, and so you leave your, uh, presumably you leave your, um, what is it? Your flat chair and you guys move in together. Do you move into his place or you guys get a place? Yeah, I move into his place because he's he's got okay. his own place. Um, I think it's somewhere in uh, West London. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> She, she says, pulling a face. And I I can just, um, and I really spent a lot of my actual 20s trying to achieve just this. And it Marrying never, a West Londoner. <laughs> just trying to kind of, um, to, to sort of have somebody let me just kind of drop into their life. And it never, ever worked. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. And, but probably quite a lot of it is that um you know and in this kind of parallel track and in this real one you know I'm still I'm still me and um I think much as I liked the kind of fantasy of just kind of almost you know um stepping out of an an old skin and just kind of putting a new one on I'm still still me and um uh I think it wouldn't have been very long before I um, started to kind of um, feel a bit like uh, sort of Jane Eyre, like tra trapped in this situation, um, which has got all these rules. And it's sort of, uh, it's getting a bit, um, a bit suffocating. And um, the, I mean, the great, the big kind of unspoken thing in all of this conversation is that I, even when I was kind of, you know, applying for this job, I wanted to write books. I wanted to be a writer. I have always, for my, you know, I was the classic kind of child who wrote stories in the back of their exercise books in class. I, I all I ever really wanted in my heart was to write books. And I spent a lot of time just sort of having, I just thought, well, it will never happen. So I was looking for all of the things that being a writer has given me in other places and looking for them in places that I think would have actually prevented me from becoming a writer or certainly have slowed it down a lot. Um, so I think, you know, for me kind of certainly it was so um, kind of singleness and the fact that I was single for so much of my you know, my, my twenties, that was absolutely 
instrumental in becoming the kind of writer I am. Um, I just don't think I would have had kind of half the thoughts that I've had without um, without that. And in this kind of unlived life, <laughs> I'm not single. You know, I I have no have no cause to have the thoughts there's no space for the thoughts because I've kind of boxed myself in really effectively also don't you think um or I guess what goes along with that sense of being boxed in is that I think that uncertainty and not knowing um and ambiguity I mean that's the breeding ground for writing right that's where the stuff comes from because you're trying to work things out so in this unlived life you've you know outwardly you've you've gotten it nailed and not only that and let's just I just want to talk for a second about the sort of um removal of autonomy that exists within your actual job mm-hmm. um how what's it looking like so now I think you know you've been there for a couple of years you've met your man you've I don't know if you've moved have you moved up a little bit like what are what are they how restricted are you well I think I mean, again, this is me kind of thinking that I'm still me in this. And I honestly, I just just can't imagine a situation in which any, like, professionally, this is going well, because I I have honestly never had a a full-time job where I haven't um, uh, sort of struggled with the kind of hierarchy element and the sort of... um, uh haven't kind of found it difficult sort of having to report into people who I didn't necessarily like or agree with and you know there I I I think the cracks would have you know and I'm sure that everyone who who works in that organization is very smart and um very professional but um I have always kind of ever since I was at school really struggled with kind of arbitrary rules I think it would have taken a real superhuman effort to in a long-term way accept these kind of restrictions on free expression which makes me sound like some Mm. kind of awful like free speech person from Twitter but like just you know um having to kind of modulate everything day in day out I think I'd have found that really difficult and I imagine that would have been quite an impediment to um career progression so what do you think you do do you think you kind of muscle through or do you think you throw in the towel I think I throw in the towel actually okay um and I I think um yeah I just can't envisage it um being very sustainable and but then of course that kind of creates an issue in my relationship if you know we're no longer yeah um a big one and I can't imagine that lasting either um yeah I really um yeah I I really don't I I don't see this kind of lasting for very um for for for, you know more than kind of uh, a couple of years let's say (laughs) I really thought we were going to get you like, you know, jumping out of a helicopter or <laughs> I'm just wondering about your other friends. Mm. You know, obviously you're not living with Ed, but he's still your friend. Yeah. You know, you've got your whole universe there and you this whole time they think you've been working for the civil service. Yeah. Are you guys still hanging out or because also presumably your husband has a whole social network? I think I'd have really drifted away from my friends. Because I think I'd have found this strain of not being able to be honest is would I think it would have been kind of easier to just uh, just you know not engage, which is again mm. so sad because you know I am I'm really close to my close friends like really really close and it's kind of one of the it's one of the big um, kind of joys of my adult life is having that level of of closeness with uh, kind of multiple people and and yeah kind of you know imagining a universe now in which like I don't have that is it's just really sad (laughs) it makes me sad 
Well, we don't want to do that for you. Don't worry. We're going to get, I think we'll get you back to them. We'll get you back to them. Um, And are they the same friends now? They are the, the sort of, has the same kind of rough group of friends lasted this whole 10 years in real life? Is it roughly the same people? It's, I'd say there's there's been quite a few new additions. Um, Okay. Because I did, uh, when I became, when I went freelance uh, about six years ago, I did kind of make a lot more friends because um, suddenly I was doing a lot more sort of work socialising. Um, and, yeah, but, you know, there are some uh, some kind of um, uh, originals. You know, I've already exchanged about 15 voice notes with Ed this morning. So <laughs> yeah. Ed sounds lovely. When did, when did you meet Ed? Um, we met at university, actually. Um, and... Yeah, kind of two thousand and seven. I'm gonna yeah, about two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Um, yeah, and um, you know, not a not a day goes by when I'm not kind of um, intensely grateful for having that level of involvement in someone else's life and them having that in mine. You know, it's a real um, a real yeah just a, a real kind of um kind of blessing and I, it's one that i think would have been um so off the table um mm. in, in this in this unlived life okay well maybe we can get you back to ed <laughs> so you quit mi5 yes um and you say French, so you and Frank sort of dissolve as a result. Does that seem about I right? It's so. sort of, yeah. yeah, yeah, it just, it stops working. Yeah. yeah. Is it a, is it an okay breakup or is it, is it just sort of a, this just doesn't make any sense anymore? Or is he, is he upset? I think I sort of imagine that I'd probably started kind of embarrassing him in front of his friends a bit by sort of, you know, talking about weird novels I'd read or, um, you know, sort of expressing slightly controversial views. Um, and, but I think he, I think he would have been uh, kind of a grown up about it, but I think I'd have been quite devastated, even if I'd, you know, known on some level that this was the right thing to do. I think, mm. um, I, you know, because you, um, well, that kind of a breakup is just awful, isn't it? Like, you know, whatever age it happens at, it's just anything that involves your home is just quite catastrophic. Um, so it really is. It's this extraordinary intersection of emotions and logistics, which is like yeah. it's just the cruelest, cruelest thing. Yeah, you just exactly shouldn't be it. responsible for logistical things at the same time as you're dealing with a big emotional wrench, and yet, yeah, and yet. <laughs> So you would have you would have parted ways with Frank. Yeah. Presumably he stays in the flat in West London because it's his place. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you go? I well, I think at that point I kind of throw myself on Ed's mercy and say I know I've been a you know, a distant friend, but um please can I come and live with you? So I end up where I did anyway, but um just you know some years later it would have been such a sort of a deviation from the path I was meant to be on and I think at that point I would have actually just started doing what I was meant to be doing um and doing what I actually then you know in the real world was forced to do by not being given the job which was actually apply myself to the question of okay I you know I've qualified as a journalist I'm really going to try to claw my way up here and I'm really going to try to um to to write um and it took it took me a long time but you know I I did get there and I I'm glad that I didn't get there 5 years later So in your real life you obviously you um when did you yeah, when did you start working on your fiction properly? It was kind of when I turned 30 and I had a bit of a um I suppose it was another kind of moment of thinking like right, time to time to change your life because I'd um I, I had a really terrible uh, writer's block. I was so self-conscious about it. Um I just I just couldn't 
I yeah, really struggled and it was embarrassing because in my day job, you know, I was writing things all the time and it was fine. But this was very, um, I was just wrestling with a lot of kind of self-doubt um, and just this feeling that this was something I would never be able to do. Mm. And I just sort of thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm 30. Um, I'm single. I don't have any children that I know of and uh, <laughs> except for the with the guy who was a security risk don't forget about him yes of course yeah my secret family with him <laughs> but I just thought you know I don't know when there might never come another point in my life when I can really focus on this and I'd be stupid not to um so that was kind of when it started when it started happening and it was around the time I went freelance which again felt like a massive massive risk um because I had been working mm. at, a, at a newspaper I definitely felt the kind of um the fear of stepping away from a kind of big organization there was kind of security in being able to say yes this is who I am and this is who I work for and I think there's always been that kind of tension in me between being quite scared of everything and wanting to hide behind this big edifice of, you know, whatever it may be. And actually um, being quite restless and wanting more than that. There's a thing about the job title, isn't there, that, that gives you so much. And again, I think it goes right back to what you were talking about, that certain kind of style that's really lauded at Cambridge. Like there are these certain things that mark us out as a somebody and a job title attached to a big company, I think is definitely one of them. The idea of sort of confidence even is one of them, right? It's an idea that we're sort of, you know, it's these sort of like brash, confident men who sort of get everything done. But actually there's a whole lot of us sort of mildly insecure, but like quite agitated women who are just sort of pushing things forward all the time. I love that so much. Mildly insecure, but quite agitated women. That's the most perfect description. I mean that in the best possible way, because that's how I feel. So I just... That's so good. I love it. That's funny. Okay, so so this is you, and you're hitting around thirty, and you've you and Ed have have come back together in blissful friendship, and you're gonna you're gonna kind of go for your writing now. Um, and I love this because I I quite like it when things come full circle and you sort of land back where you were. I guess the main thing is you've had quite different life experience, um, and I'm wondering if it changes your writing at all. That's such a good question. Hmm. Well, I think, I guess the temptation would have been there to write things um, that were more kind of thrillery, maybe. Um, and I think that's something I would have enjoyed because I actually grew up reading a lot of like detective fiction. Um, Sherlock Holmes is my absolute favourite. And actually, I kind of, um, certainly in No Such Thing as Perfect, my first book, I wanted there to be a mystery that, and a kind of penny drop moment at the end. And that those are the kind of stories I am really drawn to. So I think my kind of natural <laughs> leanings towards um, the comedic <laughs> might have made that a bit more challenging because there is no genre called thriller comedy <laughs> Throm, throm there com? could I, I be oh. <laughs> that sounds wrong that sounds, sounds somehow bad, that doesn't sound doesn't like the, a good thing that could be um yeah well maybe actually like someone like jasper ford who did like all the air affair books possibly maybe that would have been a really good uh writing career well i think that we've done more than okay i've really enjoyed our conversation thank so you so I. much thank you so much for having me it's been so interesting uh to explore and i've genuinely i've i've learned things <laughs> so thank you final question if you could take something from your unlived life and bring it into your current life what would it be oh god that's such a good question it can be like a practical thing, like the West London flat, or it could be a feeling or an emotion or a, or a realization. I was literally going to say like, Frank, you can have Frank Frank's wine fridge. Cause I bet he was like enough of a grown up to have 
one of those little, you know, they fit in like a little gap between cabinets. And I've always, yep. <laughs> I've always wanted a wine fridge. But I, in this life, it has not come to me. So yeah. Frank's wine fridge. Okay, listeners, if there are any wine fridge companies out there who can gift Emma a wine fridge, <laughs> we'd like to hear about it. And we're going to check back in and we're going to find out if you have gotten a wine fridge in the next, let's say, year. Okay, <laughs> that's, my, that's my, my mission for you is to go out and get yourself a wine fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Total pleasure. talked a lot about what it means to be, quote, grown up. We talked about what we know now that we didn't know in our 20s. We talked about the shorthand that so many use to assess whether you have your life in order. Job title, marriage, kids, house, a wine fridge. And we talked about this desire, which I'd gamble is more common than not, to just have someone take it all away. Take away the decisions, the questions, the responsibility, that messy, complicated uncertainty that's the real stuff of being a grown-up. We didn't end up spending a huge amount of time in Emma's unlived life. We dropped into the world of hard and fast rules and husbands who have it all worked out for a bit. But almost immediately, she wanted her old life back. It feels like a win for the messy, complicated bits of life. The bits we can't control and don't want anyone else to either. And that feels pretty grown-up to me. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.